Today I am joined by Professor Lauren Miller-Griffith of Texas Tech University. I'll probably also be joined by my dog who's very hungry. The front doorbell is likely to ring, but the, the, there's the door now. <laughs> but Lauren um, joins us as the, um, a new co-editor on the journal Martial Arts Studies and that's what we're going to talk about today. Hello Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm all right. Yeah, the, the dog's gone crazy. and the, But we were just talking before I press record about distractions and distractions from being professional, distractions in our working life. And I mean, you, you've just, you have just written the editorial for the next issue, for this current issue of Martial Arts Studies, which is issue 11. And you kind of touch upon on the changes in our working lives and our martial arts lives since the start of the pandemic. Um, and that's heavily on your mind, isn't it? It is. Um, I, I think so. I'm here in West Texas. And like we were saying before we started recording around here, a lot of people have acted like, oh, nothing changed. Life carried on as usual for them. And so my family has kind of locked down in our little bubble here. And we are so eager for things to get back to normal. And that's a word that I throw around all the time is, you know, um, when we get back to normal or or in the before times, right? Yeah. And it was shortly before I sat down to start working on the editorial that I started thinking, well, what does that really mean? And it was funny because I was kind of beating myself up actually thinking I've had almost 18 months at home and what do I have to show for it, right? Shouldn't I have had some great epiphany about um, work-life balance or, you know, the, the silver lining that I'm going to carry forward into my life in the aftertimes. Um, and I was kind of beating myself up for not doing that. Yeah. Um, and that's where I started with reflecting on what does it mean to return to normal? And what does that mean for us as scholars, for us as martial artists? Um, and then I went back and looked at the pieces that we were publishing in this issue. And so many of them either explicitly or implicitly touched on that. Um, that I felt like it was something we needed to address. Yeah, and and I mean, as a kind of as a social scientist, as anyone working in the humanities, the word normal instances is alarm bells going off, like yeah. as if normal is somehow a synonym of natural and and the way things should be. But we know right. that everything is so contingent upon so many factors. I mean, that was a huge source of anxiety for me. Through, through the first 12, 14 months of this pandemic. It's like, like martial arts had been stolen, they'd been ripped out of my life. And it was all just solo training or nothing. And if there's no interaction, if there's no physical interaction, what's the point of trying to maintain anything? It's mm -hmm. like a real existential crisis. I mean, do you think that we've, I mean, in West, maybe in Texas, they were just like, no, la, 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 la. Not listening. Is that what it was like? Or, I mean, did you stop? Did people stop training? Did some clubs stop? It's funny because, um, so my engagement with the local martial arts community is through my older son, who's now six. And he actually had not started training until, um, gosh, probably March of 21. So I didn't see firsthand the shutdown here. Um, but what I hear is that a lot of classes went online and started doing the Zoom classes. Um, but that was pretty short term. It didn't take long before they were back face to face. And some never went virtual. Some of the, the classes here, like what was being offered through our parks and recs, um, they kept going. They just opened the windows. 
and they said that parents couldn't come in to watch. So you had parents that, I mean, and I did see this in our parks, parents that were peering through the windows and watching their kids train inside. Um, but no, there was a lot of just, we're gonna pretend this isn't happening. Um, masks weren't really a thing until it was required by the governor. And that again was pretty short lived too. Yeah. I mean, when you, you meant, you write a little bit about your, your son's um, martial arts club in, in the editorial. The editorial, actually, you cover so much ground so much. fast. So the, the editorial must be what, a couple of thousand words, maybe a few thousand words max. Yeah. And you've got everything, you've got social justice, exclusionary <laughs> policies, you've got the global south and, and the difference between the affluent, you know, west and no northern uh, hemisphere and everything, I mean, everything. Uh, not, not everything, everything, but like, wow. Uh, you know, you, you see the connections between aspects of martial arts practice that maybe it, it, we tend not to look for or look at, but, but you cast new light on things. I think people are gonna love the editorial. Well, um, thank so you, and it's too much. It, I, I mean, I think I covered too many things in too little space and each of those should be pulled out. Um, but that was kind of my thinking and, and again, I was really inspired by a lot of the pieces that we're publishing in this issue. Um, there are so many things that could be taken further um, and suggest additional studies that could be done. Um, I mean, so this whole idea of interpersonal connection, what are you training for? Because I don't wanna be the pessimist, but this could happen again. There are going to be things that cause us to retreat, whether that's society-wide, and I mean, I hope not, but we've seen the Delta variant start going through our communities and people are in some places having to lock down again. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanna turn that question back to you. What did you train for? What kept you going? Well, I, I, kind of, I found that I had a, an existential crisis like and I've only ever had one one equivalent before which was when I was in like in my late 30s and I, I dislocated my foot and broke my ankle in three places and I, I genuine and the doctors had said mm, you can forget about all of that stuff you can forget about kung fu because I was doing kung fu and tai chi at the time and that really messed with my head because I, I didn't understand how central it was to my sense of, of who I am mm -hmm. and I knew that going into this and at first I thought it would be a few weeks <laughs> and they said, like, yeah. within three weeks, if we all just stay still for three weeks, hey. Um, but I mean, I published an article in, in the issue before, in issue 10, where I kind of tried to reflect on what happened to me and, and connect that with, with, I called it like the general structure of feeling of being a kind of isolated martial artist and what that, what that meant. In the end, I mean, when we got, when it started to look like I could get back to training, which I have managed to get back to, to group training because we've been vaccinated and things like this. I, I was actually kind of settled in a nice routine where I was doing a lot of Tai Chi, a lot of Qigong, and then a lot of strength training. I was doing, and, and, and that was working for me. My time was my own. And I thought, I don't, maybe I don't want to go back training. But then, but then it's like a shark in the water and you smell blood and you're like, oh my God, what do you mean I could roll again? I could, I could, I could start spending money on jujitsu gear and buy some merch. And, and, and so like, I'm just, I'm, I'm back with it, but I, I, I cherish it. I mean, I, like, and I, but I also now do value the, the, 
the independent stuff that I that it's about me and about me as a as I'm, I've just turned 50 and need to spend so I, I'm not training jujitsu crazy like I was before like mm-hmm. I do two classes a week and in between I'll do strength I'll do yoga and flexibility I'll have a rest day so things have gone back to this the way they were but they're very different and mm-hmm. I'm my outlook is different I mean what are you doing? Are you still doing any capoeira or are you? I haven't been. So here in Lubbock, there are a couple of folk that do capoeira, but they do the Hegenal style. Yeah. Um, so before all of this happened with COVID, they were really working hard to get a, a student group going. And I did some things with them. We did some volunteer work out at our local boys and girls club and we were teaching the kids and it was really fun. Um, I didn't feel like I was performing at my best because it's not the style I know. So I just felt like, you know, a beginner all over again and I was flailing around, but it was, it was fun. It was play, which is what it is supposed to be with other people and doing it with kids made it that much better. Um, But I haven't been training on my own. What I do is run. That's kind of become my, my outlet. And it was before the pandemic and it's continued now. Um, and I don't want to say that I run away from my kids because that would be an <laughs> unfair characterization, but, but it is my time, right? Yeah. It's probably kind of like your solo training or your strength training. It's when you can focus on yourself yeah. and not have to wear all the different hats, right? Yeah. It's a funny thing because, you know, I've, I've done Tai Chi for 20 years now and, um, and there's this stereotype about Tai Chi that it makes you like really kind of calm and almost like like almost like Zen would be the cliche. But I've noticed like if I've decided I'm going to do Tai Chi and people are like shouting down the garden, like Paul, I'm like, I'm like the Hulk. <laughs> it's like I'm 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 doing this. This is me, this is mine. And I I turn into the most short-tempered person. I, I'm That's generally so quite, I'm relatively patient with my children and my dog, mm-hmm. but if I'm doing Tai Chi, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> anything else, I'm happy to be interrupted, but like, yeah. but Tai Chi is like, it's like stirring a risotto, you can't just walk away from it, it's, it's screwed <laughs> if, if, if you do that. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, you talk about, in your editorial, you talk about so many different things, you throw so many terms in there. One of the ones that I've never actually heard before was toxic positivity. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> it's <a> great one. <laughs> and that's a new, newer term for me too. It's honestly something that I just started seeing back in, well, I guess back in March of 2020. But as soon as I saw it, I recognized yeah. it immediately, I'm right? It's, yeah. Yeah, those people who, I mean, you may be just in the pits of despair and and legitimately so, right? You've got reasons to be upset. Um, and they tell you, oh, it's it's all right, buck up, it's gonna be okay. Um, and that's not helpful, right? Sometimes you just need someone to wallow with you or at least be a, a maybe not even respond, but just let you pour out your heart. Yeah. Um, so that was, I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't do that. I didn't want it to be this overly sunny, we've learned so many great things and we're going to come back and be better than, than we were before. Because um, we still have problems. Yeah, yeah, Even yeah. when things go back to normal and we're all vaccinated, I think we still need to wrestle with some of these issues that were there before and then yeah. just got exacerbated during the pandemic. And, and you, I mean, you also connected to, to like, you know, globe the global situation because we may think we're okay 
in the UK and in the US because we, we were first in the, in the line to buy the vaccines. But we're screwed if we don't solve these things globally. I right. mean, I mean, they're, you know, we might be screwed anyway, but like there's so much, you're very interested in the kind of hierarchies and exclusions, aren't you? And you're always, you always try to be alert, alert to that. Yeah. Like how much, how much exactly does a kid's karate class cost anyway? How much do they charge in BJJ? Who can do it? Who cannot do it? Who, right. how much does a capoeira class cost? And then, and also like who's getting these vaccines and who mm -hmm. isn't? And what are the ramifications of that? Right. Um, and that, that you really kind of pulled that all out onto the onto the table and also onto the agenda of, of martial arts studies, which I thought was was really good and important. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, I think about some of the capoeira masters that are in Brazil and as dire as the situation has been for us here, it has been so much worse for them. Not only did they lose local income. Yeah. Um, but they also lost the income that they would normally get from coming to the U.S. or going to the U.K. or wherever to teach classes. Um, so that's affected them. And then they're not getting the same access to the vaccine that we enjoy. Mm. Um, their government has not handled the pandemic well. Mm. Um, Bolsonaro is sort of notorious for not having handled things well. Um, so, yeah, I guess the question for me is what debt do we owe? the masters in the countries where these martial arts originated. Are we just gonna focus on our own communities and, and yay, we can go back to training because now we're relatively safe? Um, or do we have a responsibility to participate in crowdsource funding campaigns, um, reaching out and making sure these masters are cared for? Mm -hmm. And I don't have the answer to that. I think in the Capoeira community, most of us say, yes, we owe, we have a debt that we must pay. Um, but I don't know, what do you see in the BJJ community? Well, I was, I mean, Rob, before answering that question, I was, I was thinking about another term that you, that you use quite a lot, which is social justice. And I was wondering if, 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 if this thinking about debt and obligation and maybe repaying things that weren't, that didn't have a financial value on them would mm -hmm. be part of your interest in social justice. I mean, that maybe people just may or may not feel that responsibility I mean how do you how how does one enable a kind of structure of of identification where you go hang on a second we're doing capoeira in this in in London or in Edinburgh right. or or right. you know or in Dallas or something we're doing capoeira and we're we're paying our instructor you know how much how many dollars or pounds a month mm -hmm. do we not have an obligation to to the the, the much fetishized um you know places where these these arts were founded do people think that do they see that i don't know because i guess I, I guess with with brazilian jiu-jitsu really the the sort of home of jiu-jitsu is, is california really mm -hmm. you know, right the and everyone just moved there and actually i think people misrecognize a lot of a lot of regional zones as if they're important but actually it always goes through california somehow uh, you know martial arts films in California, mm -hmm. martial arts yeah. communities, martial arts styles, San Francisco, it's California. Can you leave me alone, please, Doug? Um, so I don't know uh, whether in the UK that would enter very many people's heads at all, especially in a big formalized setup like Gracie Baja or something, right. um, where you, you pay, you're paying lots for a very, very institutionalized um, thing. 
maybe in other martial arts you might identify with a with a surname with a family with a, mm-hmm. a town or region do you think people do that in capoeira or in capoeira yes um and actually the book i'm working on right now focuses on that this sort of um what i'm calling the affect of habitus this you know, emotional disposition that people have towards the world that is cultivated in a very particular way within capoeira. Um, And it's not all capoeira groups. There are certainly some that are just out there. Um, One of my friends calls it sexy dance fighting, you know, because that's (laughs) kind of what it looks like, right? And and it is hard work and you sweat and you get toned and some people just want that and that's fine. Um, But then there are other groups that really focus on the, the foundational story. Um, and, you know, I think you and I are on the same page. There's an invented narrative that's at the, the bedrock of a lot of these arts, right? Yeah. Um, so I can't go back and verify that any of these things within Capoeira's history actually happened. Um, and that's not my interest. My interest is what people do with it. And I think that when people focus on that narrative of resistance, this whole idea that, you know, enslaved Africans used capoeira to fight back against oppression, if that is what you believe, whether it's true or not true, doesn't matter. If that's what you believe, then it causes you to act in a certain way. And I think by repeating that story enough, singing the songs about slavery enough, it sort of filters into people's consciousness that, hey, we should be alert to these issues of inequality. So I think within Capoeira, it happens, but it's not everybody everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this takes us back to the idea of normal. And I was, I was, I was thinking earlier on today, I was thinking back to, to the keynote that you gave in, in California in, in 2019 at our conference. And, and you're talking about social justice there and, and, you know, like Capoeira clubs, like linking up with, with social movements and protest movements. And, at the t- and, and I, a lot of the time I'm like, yeah, that's kind of quite idealistic, isn't it? But thinking about normal, I mean, there is no default normal natural setting for a martial arts club. So let's say you join a martial arts club, you might have a really, um, you know, antiquated, patriarchal, sexist, possibly even explicitly racist teacher. There might be that ethos there. There might, or you might go to another club and it might be really open. It might be, it might be really inclusive. It might be really kind of woke and and, in lots of different ways. And so there is no natural default setting for a club. So it's, you're always, whether you know it or like it or not, positioned within a discourse of, well, a political discourse, mm-hmm. really, uh, with an you know an ethical outlook, an ideological outlook, um, and I just think that realizing, and, and it's something that I just I, that I realize again and again and again, and keep forgetting, you know, that like this this interest in social justice is not really just an interest in people who seem particularly politically correct or switched on or active or something. Mm-hmm. I tend I often misunderstand social justice movements and social justice as a topic, as a kind of fetishizing people who are really politically active, but it's not that, is it? That's, it's more than I think it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so I've kind of been um, oh, really fussing over this term, social justice warrior. Like, what does that mean for a martial mm. artist, right? Um, because it often gets thrown around as something really bad. Being a social justice warrior is someone who's almost like fake about their commitment to social issues. Um, And so I think maybe we can reclaim that a little bit in our small actions. And and that's 
I mean, kind of more like what you're saying, it doesn't have to be this really overt, I'm going to go to every protest there is and raise my fists. And it, it can be the small things. It can be, where do we source our t-shirts from yeah. for this event, right? Have we done our homework to check and make sure that they're not using, um, you know, sweatshop labor or whatever the yeah. current term is, but doing it in a genuine way or something else that comes up in Capoeira is, um, I don't think this is intentional. I don't think people sit down with like a racist intent. Um, but if you invite a white mestre to your group and you offer to pay a handsome sum for him or her to give a class, but then you call up your friend who's a black capitalist and you're like, hey, can you volunteer five hours of your day to come and give this workshop? There's inequality there that needs yeah. to be addressed. Yeah, you talk about you talk about this in, in the editorial as well, don't you? And it made me think. It reminded me of that old Naomi Klein thing, like why don't we all sit around and like look at the labels on our on our t-shirts and 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 clothes and see where they are made. Mm -hmm. And 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 clothes manufacturers kind of got switched onto that quite quickly in response. Yeah. You know, Naomi's Naomi Klein's intervention was very successful in making places like Gap be really vague about where things came from. Anyway, <laughs> on the inside of my gi, it says designed in the USA. And it's like designed in the USA. And then you have to dig around in the gi somewhere when you're looking for the washing instructions going, like, yeah, admittedly made in China. Right. Like, we're not going to, but like, what kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to interpret that. Is it like, is it American nationalism? Uh, is it or, or like patriotism? Right. Or is it, so, is it some version of like act local? you know, shop local? Is it like trying to pass itself off as that? I don't know, but it, it amuses me and upsets me every time I see that, almost every yeah. time I put it on. Yeah, I, I would think it's probably the latter. Well, I don't know, there's patriotism. In mm. the US, there's patriotism infused into everything, right? Yes. Um, but it does seem to be like, companies have tapped into this idea that, yeah, we want to know where our products come from. We, we yeah oppose the exploitation of workers in other countries. So anytime, any claim you can make that sort of supports your um, I don't know, reputation as being justice-minded, yeah. they're gonna do. Um, so I don't know, does that, does that factor into your decision-making when you purchase equipment? Do you look at where it's made? Me personally? Yeah. Do I? I... I, I seem to buy a lot of stuff that definitely comes from China, yeah. but I, I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, right. So pro I think the short answer is kind of no, I'm mm -hmm. not that, I'm not that much of an activist mm -hmm. on any front. I'm, I'm terrible, really. The younger, the younger version of me would look at me now and be going, what? But I'm like, well, I'll get the cheaper one. You know, right. the one I can afford. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, I talk a big game about all these social justice things, but when I took Harper in to sign up for his, his first class, he was given a gi, right? So I didn't do any uh, yeah. investigation or anything. Did that come from? Great free yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. But I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, I did. I mean, something like, so I think, so you took your son to karate, but like, I, I was singing the praises of, of Brazilian jiu-jitsu to my niece. And, and she's in a different city, different part of the country. And she went for a free lesson and she loved it, loved it, loved it. And then they said, okay, so the gi costs a hundred pounds and it's a hundred pounds a month, but that goes down. And she was like, oh, and you, cause you, 
when you get to my stage of middle age, middle classness, you just kind of go, yeah. But like, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu itself, which is yeah, arguably a great uh, mm -hmm. martial art for say young women and girls, it's mm -hmm. actually incredibly expensive. It's, it's a very, very exclusionary practice because mm -hmm. it's, it's just out of the reach of affordability for so many people. Maybe the people who deserve it or, 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 or could benefit from it most. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. So yeah, I think we, we like your editorial uh, and I think that people will like it. Shall we, shall we, let me tell where I'll, the rest of the, the issue, I mean, let, I'll remind you of some of the articles in it. So, yeah. so and I'll ask you which ones you, maybe you liked. So we have two that are explicitly about the pandemic. We have an mm -hmm. article called Martial Arts in the Pandemic, which was based on a big survey uh, of questions about you know how, how things had changed or stayed the same for people during the pandemic and then we have um an article about online training of aikido um, i found and, that and, really interesting yeah i mean i i found there wasn't an article that i did not find interesting right um but the when i was reading the one on aikido it raised so many questions for me um and i think what really stuck with me was this ethic of caring yeah and it, how that's the point right i mean it, you said what are we training for yeah. and uh, in that article there was a very clear purpose that had nothing really to do with fitness or improving your form necessarily but it was you know this is a mechanism that we have at our disposal to reach out and make sure that people are okay right now yeah. and i just thought that was really beautiful the the idea behind that yeah, I thought I thought so too. I mean, when I when we were working with that article, and I was raising some comments for the authors, and I was thinking, yeah, but I know some Aikido instructors who <laughs> they wouldn't be nice. To. <laughs> but, but you know, they, they, their article wasn't necessarily a, a, about that. It was about their experience. It was a kind of ethnographic um, reflection on it all, wasn't it? Yeah, and I mean, we're all writing about the corner of the world that we know, right? Yeah. So when when they say in there, this is what Aikido instructors are doing, um, yeah. I don't know if that speaks to the entire field yeah. or not. It would be, I, I can't speak to the entire Capoeira field. I can speak to what I've seen. Um, but I mean, they they did raise some interesting ideas as far as how do you adapt your pedagogy to fit this online environment? which I think was really useful. Um, and I appreciated that they limited their own space to what they assumed their students would have. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're not asking people to do things that are unrealistic. I, I tried a few Zoom classes during the pandemic and it was, it was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, we did, I, did, I taught some Zoom Tai Chi people at work. Tai Chi is actually really quite doable at a beginner level, I think, uh, but I, I yeah, the, the whole switching of, of things like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu online is inherently funny. When like, here's some routines. <laughs> what, formal routines, you say? Formal, formalized, soul, no partner work. Hmm, should you call that a kata maybe? The very exactly. thing that you've ridiculed. Um, but then there was, so the third, we start to move away from the COVID-19 thing. Mm -hmm. We have an article on distress tolerance imagery, which, which is interesting. I mean, the first couple of times I passed through that, I, I kind of, when I, I was reading it as if it was like using imagery to strengthen your fighting, but it's not about that at all. No, it? 
No, and that's how I approached it too. The first yeah. time I read it, that's what I thought it was going to be. Um, and it, it wasn't. It was envisioning conflicts and ways to navigate it without resorting to violence. And mm. I thought that is really useful. Yeah. I mean, the other would be useful too. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. That one, but, that, that was quite subtle, wasn't it? And I, we had to go back to the author and say, look, could you make this more explicit? Because people might get confused like we did. Like we thought yeah. this was about imagining your opponent and doing all that visualization, but it was not about that. So yeah. it, was, <laughs> it was more subtle. And then we have an article um, on Capoeira, which um, you might have a thing or two to say about. Um, and- Well, I think that's a, a fantastic, article and a much needed counterpoint to sort of what the dominant discourse on Capoeira has been. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the title itself is extremely provocative, right? So the but title, it, I'll read it out, is Mexican yeah. Capoeira is not diasporic, exclamation mark, yeah. on globalization, migration, and the north-south south divide. So it's not diasporic. Mm -hmm. It's it's global, it's globalized. It's, it's, yeah which is a subtle but crucial distinction, I guess. It is, and I, I mean, there are just so many differences in the experience of um, Mexican capoeiristas compared to what I've seen here, right? Because if you look at Capoeira Angola in the United States, one of the biggest organizations here, it came about because people were interested in sort of this pan-African um, social movement, right? And they handpicked a teacher that was not only a fantastic um, technician, right? I mean, his skills are just off the charts. He is amazing, but he is, is very well-read, very intelligent, very vocal about Capoeira being this diasporic um, art, right? So our entire social field is influenced by that ideological commitment. And then to see something so different in Mexico was really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, there are points in there that I'm, I'm still sitting with because, okay. Um, yeah. Okay, and then, the, I mean, the issue kind of changes direction somewhat, um, and we go to uh, European fight books from the 14th to the 20th century. So Daniel Jacquet has written an article that, that essentially explores the presence and then the absence, what he calls the invisibilizing, the making, the, just the eradication of women from these European fight, sword fighting and various other forms of fighting books. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that article enormously. I did too. <laughs> so I think that article could turn into four different articles, honestly. Um, so I was not familiar with the code of conduct that governed duels during this time period. And so the idea that if I lived back then and I had some sort of conflict with a man that I would get to run around with three stones wrapped in cloth and he would be buried up to his kidneys, like I'm still picturing that. And I think it's fantastic. The image itself is just amazing. It's just great. <laughs> How do we make this fair? Well, maybe we should bury the man up to his waist and, 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 and give the woman a crocodile or something I don't know right but and then the training for it because in my mind I mean okay um I will admit to watching Netflix's Bridgerton like binging it within a week right yeah. um and so I'm picturing this duel at dawn where you go out and it's the heat of the moment and very passionate and all this I had never really thought, oh, you actually would hire somebody to train you and you would have a set amount of time to train and prepare for it. And I mean, that was just fascinating to me. 
Um, but then the case studies of these different individuals in the fight books, that I thought was interesting. And I would love to see each one of those case studies explored more fully. Um, because, I mean, obviously the article has gone through different iterations. Um, and at one point I'm looking at this individual, this description of this individual thinking, is this person really transgender? What do we mean when we say transgender? And of course there are textbook definitions and then there's sort of popular discourse and how people think about transgender. Um, and some of these cases complicate those taken for granted assumptions. And I thought it was really interesting. So I, I love that. I had fun reading it and I would like to see people take those threads further. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. And I think that was, that's part of Daniel's you know, hope as well that he's done this first survey through to set out the um, there's a dog bell, there's a dog. Uh, to set out the terms of, of some future research questions. Um, and then I wonder, I wonder if that's my new gee that I just heard. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, I mean that's it's like it's like with your editorial, you kind of want to provoke and stimulate people to to to, to pick up these gauntlets. I mean, use the gauntlet yeah. image, like you throw down the gauntlets, you throw them out. Right throughout the challenges. Um, and then the next article we move um, into the, the relationship between French military and pedagogical history with Okinawa and Japan. And there's, a, there's, a, there's something going on here that is really interesting. And, and, and it's, not just, it's not just the authors of, of, of this article. And I've seen this done time and time again, where you have, say, like, say, Japanese and Korean scholars arguing with each other about, like, who truly originated you know, right. these things. And what we're seeing now is a movement where people look at the larger institutional and, and military history of nations and go, so the French were in Okinawa training people in these drills that when you look at, they look like kata, right, mm -hmm. but they weren't called. So did therefore the French influence um, the, the development of, of, of kata and of different techniques? And mm -hmm. it's, I don't know if it's an ideological project, maybe it is, you know, the authors are French, maybe they like, they want some more kudos for the status of France in, in, in 19th and 20th century history. But it's very interesting, isn't it, to kind of deorientalize. It, like it's extremely Russia. interesting. And I mean, I've come across a reference to um, French sailors that were in Brazil and, yeah. you know, what, uh, obviously they were fighting and they got into the mix with the early capoeiristas and what yeah. stuck, right? Um, so if you say, oh no, it's 100% African, then you are marginalizing this potential contribution from the French, but why? Yeah. Is it because there's not enough historical evidence for it? Or is it, like you said, ideological? Because if we admit that this very important global power, um, a colonial power had influence, then we can't make these other claims about it being 100% African. I don't know. I mean, I think it gets really messy really fast, but it's, it's interesting. And it's another one of those threads that should be sort of teased out even more. Yeah. And it's... And it's interesting that there's a, a symmetry where, so it's so easy for, for me to spot if I'm in a conference and I see Japanese and, and Korean and, and Chinese scholars kind of arguing about whose martial arts are oldest. And it's easy to see that at play. Mm -hmm. It's easy to see the, 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 the investments there. But maybe, you know, 
maybe it's not so straightforward or maybe we all you know we all suffer it the same mm -hmm. um it's, it's very very thought-provoking i think and very um potentially controversial i mean this could ruffle a lot of feathers because there's a the next stage of the argument i know that i know the authors wanted to get to it but they didn't because of COVID-19, they weren't able to get to certain archives in Japan and Okinawa, which they had planned to get to. Uh, the, there's an argument that's been popularized on YouTube as well, that actually the Japanese um, just borrowed a load of kicks from Savat. Like, mm -hmm. and there may be evidence for that, which is like, ooh. on the one hand, you might, you might as well just go, so, like, yeah, and who, like, who cares? Kicks come from, kicks are kicks, you know, whatever. But on the other hand, there's, there, there's all sorts of, um cards being played here aren't there and, and claims being made <laughs> especially because of the power of the different nations that are involved right um yeah. so it's a very different thing if you claim to have borrowed from an oppressed people that you were oppressing um versus another nation that was a colonizer yeah yeah and then and then well let's move on to the, the those final two articles we've got uh, another an, a fresh study of the status of the walking stick in in kind of British self-defense history um, and it's 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 relation to like Bartitsu and Victorian and Edwardian gentlemanly life which as a piece of history I mean I I, I love that moment I mean it's it's I guess oh here we go we see because I'm British and it's, right. it, it just interests me and it's just interesting to to learn that kind about that kind of formative moment of 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 the interaction of the the french the swiss the the boxing and then the japanese um you know cultural influences on on this on self-defense in the uk i just i i can read that stuff endlessly <laughs> and you're gonna have to edit this part out because that was um one of the few things that i didn't look at and I was kind of, and ah. not because I was uninterested in it, but because I was in triage mode. Um, yes. And I was like, okay, that one was already taken care yeah, of. Yeah, we so did. So, so what? Yeah, with that that one, you didn't you didn't edit them. You didn't edit them all. We we share out the editing load, and I'd done that one quite early on. So yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot there. I didn't. <laughs> well, that's okay. We 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 share the editing out across the team, and I I kind of. I did um, all of them at least once, but not everyone did everything once. Yes, <clears throat> and Bartitsu is something that I didn't know about for a really, really long time. <clears throat> yeah. um, and the first time I heard about it, I was like, really, that's a thing? Um, <laughs> and one of my students brought it up in Anthropology of Martial Arts because I always tell them like the first assignment is go find a martial art that you have never heard of before and come yeah. back and give us a five minute you know, summary of what you've learned. So it's nothing in depth, but it's just to sort of break them of the notion that all martial arts are Asian, right? Because there are plenty that are not. Um, and so a student came back with that and I was like, I, I mean, I was fascinated. I had absolutely no idea that that was a thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, the history of that is, is interesting. The history of the, the emergence of its popularity in the late 20th century is interesting. Yeah. And then finally, an article on uh, Krav Maga and its history and representation and globalization. Now, this one is 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 interesting. Um, it's mm -hmm. interesting because it it engages with Krav Maga in relation to the the relatively newly circulating term in certain circles of Israeliness. Mm -hmm. This complex ideological kind of Barthesian sort of semiotic entity of Israeliness. So, you know, it's a for a long time, 
<laughs> I don't know, for a long time was Krav Maga explicitly ideologically connect, connected with, with, with Israel or with the Israeli military? To me, it always has been from the first time mm. I heard of it. But I've spoken to practitioners who kind of go, no, 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 not relevant, not, not relevant at all. But, um, so have you ever trained in Krav Maga? No, but I know people who have. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in Britain, the stereotypes and the jokes about Krav Maga, and it's, it's also the same, I guess, in the US. I mean, I've been recently watching the comedy films of, of, of this guy called uh, Sensei Seth. Right, who, I saw your blog. There's some really good really good comedy and it's like the jokes about Krav Maga have been jokes about just people who with kind of knife obsessions just like complete like fetishistic fascinations with with knives yeah uh, and and that's the stereotype and therefore you know uh, when viewed from the perspective of the ideological world of another martial art something that's much that d doesn't like striking even like jiu-jitsu you can see how these two arts will line up as 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 you know objects of fun or ridicule of each other yeah um but i mean what I, when i've read about krav maga and when i've talked to people about krav maga in britain i don't think you get as many israel flags and things in the clubs but maybe right. that's creeping in maybe in these ever more securitizing and militarizing times maybe we'll get more of that where it mm -hmm. becomes explicitly connected with with israel um, as a thing, as opposed to just being, this is a really effective military-based or military-originating yeah. fighting style. I mean, what do you what do you know of the, the of the American context of that? So I know relatively little, and this is probably going to sound strange, but my first exposure to it, I I must have been in college, um, watching the TV show Gilmore Girls. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen the show or have any familiarity. I've, I've heard of it, but I don't watch. I didn't watch it. I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, it's it's definitely aimed towards a female audience. Um, okay. And one of the characters trains in it because the only apartment they can afford near Yale is in a quote unquote bad neighborhood, right? Okay. Um, so it's it's almost like Inspector Clouseau, right? You never know when they're gonna be be rolling and, and working on their moves and stuff. Um, and so that was sort of my first exposure is it's useful in dangerous environments, right? Yeah. And here, where my son does karate, they also teach Krav Maga um, yeah. to kids and to adults. And it's presented in the same way. I mean, if you go by the storefront where this school is, um, one of the big images on the outside that completely covers one of the windows is a woman in a tight-fitting dress with big hoop earrings that's in a you know chokehold by a big scary guy in a hood, mm. right? Um, and that's sort of how it's marketed here. So when I read the article and saw it engaging with this idea of Israeliness and Israeli identity, um, it raised a lot of questions for me about the future. And I guess I shouldn't even say the future, but, but right now there's so much conflict going on. And I live in an environment that is very Christian um, and very white. And there's sort of this automatic assumption that we, um, the people of this region are going to support Israel. Yes. Um, so what is the situation in Krav Maga classes? Are they aware of this paradox, which comes up in the article, of an art that was invented to protect people that had been oppressed and marginalized 
now being used by people who themselves have become oppressors, right? There's a really, you know, something ironic there that should be investigated further. And I, I just am fascinated to find out how it plays out on the ground, but I don't know. Yeah. A friend of mine, guy I went to university with, um, and he was an obsessive martial artist and, and he still is. And he, he, he ended up working in some, <laughs> some special police unit in London. And then he ended up working in Texas of all places. Oh, now he has a, a, like a private security firm in Texas. Right. And he told me a while ago that, you know, you get called, you'd be called into a community, maybe a church or mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and, and they'll be going, so how can we, how can we make this environment safe from like, from terrorists? <laughs> And he's saying, you don't need to worry about like Islamic terrorism here. What you need to worry about, because the person who will come in with a gun into this church is a cuckolded husband. It's a jealous lover. It's a, it's a, it's a relative with a grievance. It's like, you don't need to worry about right. like the Taliban or something. You right. just don't need to worry about that. but there but there is so much anxiety i mean we're in a community where the preachers are armed yeah i mean people can carry guns without like it's yeah that doesn't make me feel safer no (laughs) (laughs) it's meant to right it's It's, it is and and you know what's interesting it does make some people feel safer Um, And I find that very interesting. I enjoy having conversations with people who feel safer by the presence of guns in the hands of civilians, untrained civilians. Oh my God. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I struggle with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My, um, this, this, uh, I know we've moved away from academia, but when I, when I first started, um, doing jiu-jitsu my instructor said a really funny thing he was as as a jiu-jitsu instructor he got a little bit obsessed with this group um in britain they're called fight labs and 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 they're they're like kind of like they used they used to do casey fighting method and now they just do like they try to innovate in the self-defense personal protection world right sure and and he said he was looking at one of their things and you go you're in this situation blah 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 so you pull out your knife and he said just said if pulling out your knife makes sense to you, then maybe you're the problem. Maybe you're the problem. <laughs> right, right. Oh. Just, I, I often oh. think that this is a wonderful expression. Like, if that's what self-defense is, actually, maybe we need to be defended from you. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we live in different worlds. You know, you're in Texas and, and I'm, I'm very far away from Texas, so. Texas is its own world. I mean, and and, students are allowed to carry guns on our campus. So um, that's another part of our context. Okay, I'm not gonna, even gonna go there. And I mean, yeah. poss- poss- probably literally, but um, also in terms <laughs> of the conversation. Well, Lauren, we've talked now for quite some time. We could talk a lot longer, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna let you go and get on with your day and, um, and just say thank you. And uh, thanks for joining the editorial team of ah. the journal. We're, we're already, feeling enriched we're feeling the kind of the energy and and everything of it and i and i think it's going to be really great for the journal so thank you lauren and thank you for taking the time to uh to speak to me on the podcast today well thank you it is an honor to have been invited and to join the editorial team it's been so much fun even though we're just one issue in i feel like i've 
I've learned a lot um, and I've seen such interesting articles come through. I can't wait to see what the next one is. Excellent. Okay, thank you then. All right. Bye. Bye.